Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Before we begin, I, I want to let you know about a new show from Curious Cast that I think you might really, really enjoy. It's called Russia Rising. Putin's Russia has been accused of using internet trolls and hackers and even assassins to influence the West. This new investigative podcast hopes to unravel this, this giant mystery with the help of those who know best. Russian trolls, hackers, Putin supporters, even a former Russian KGB agent. Join Europe Bureau Chief of Global News, Jeff Semple. He goes on a journey to unravel how Russia has gone from tenuous ally to a potential global threat. You can listen to Russia Rising for free at CuriousCast.ca or wherever you're enjoying the ongoing history of new music. Do it. Trust me, you'll love it. A career in rock music isn't exactly the most secure or the most safe. You know, the long hours, the rough travel, the bad food, the smoke, the drink, the drugs. And even after you subject yourself to all this bad living and torture, you still might find yourself dirt poor in failing health and with no benefits or pension. And if you're really unlucky or stupid, you'll end up dead. And to add further insult, you may find that your death was actually your best career move. The moment you shuffled off this mortal coil and joined the choir invisible, your record sales spiked and your fame skyrocketed. Great. So much for enjoying the fruits of your labor. Well, at least you wouldn't be alone. The afterlife is crowded with guys who are more famous dead than they were when they were alive. Now here, let me show you. Wow, this is, uh... Hey, hey, look, it's Elvis. He's making more money now than when he was alive. Oh, oh, and then there's John and George. George is happy now, but just wait till Yoko gets here. And hey, hey, Joey. Yeah, hi, Joey Ramone. Wow, <laughs> most of the Ramones are here now. You know, maybe Joe Strummer can sit in. That would be a great band. Hey, um, has anybody seen Sid? Oi, down here, Mike. Oh, <laughs> yeah, hi, hi, Sid. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. That'll set the tone. Dead Souls from Joy Division, featuring dead guy singer Ian Curtis. While he was alive, Ian was so poor that he and his wife had to sell the family dog because they couldn't afford to feed him. We're talking some serious poverty. But after he died, he hung himself in the kitchen after a long bout with depression, exacerbated by manic depression, a worsening case of epilepsy, and a failed romance with a person not his wife. Joy Division's fortunes took off. Now, they are considered to be one of the most influential post-punk bands of all time. Their records continue to sell by the boatload through several generations of music fans. New Order, the band that formed out of the ashes of Joy Division, also became uber-influential, which led a lot of new people to buy Joy Division records. The good news in all this is that Ian's widow, Deborah, and his daughter now receive a nice stream of royalty checks. And who knows what might have happened had he lived. By the way, Ian Curtis hung himself literally just hours before Joy Division was supposed to leave on their very first American tour. There was a feeling that the group was on the verge of something huge. But we'll never know because Ian snuffed it on the eve of what could have been a gigantic artistic and commercial triumph. Ian Curtis, 
July 15, 1956, to May 18, 1980. Died poor at age 23, and now very rich. Dead, but rich. Welcome to the show. I'm Alan Cross, and this is going to be kind of gruesome, but, you know, somebody's got to do it. This program will detail a whole bunch of new rock performers who became richer in death than they ever were in life. I mean, every year we hear about how much the estate of Elvis Presley pulled in. It's in the tens of millions of dollars these days. John Lennon, another guy who's getting richer even though he's dead. Classic rock is littered with these kinds of stories. There's Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison of The Doors, Bon Scott of ACDC, John Bonham of Led Zeppelin, Keith Moon of The Who, Keith Richards of The Ro- What? Oh, okay. Yeah, Keith Richards is not dead. He just, he just looks it. My mistake, sorry. But what about new rock and alternative music? There's more than you may realize, and here they are in no particular order. Let's get the obvious one out of the way. Nirvana. Now, Nirvana was already hugely successful by the time Kurt Cobain killed himself on or about April 5th, 1994. It's estimated that between 1991 and 1994, this three-year period, Nirvana generated somewhere between 50 and $100 million worth of gross revenue. And as the chief singer-songwriter, Kurt raked in quite a tidy sum. He got the majority of all that cash. Now, there was a little concern at the end of his life because the In Utero album was almost considered to be a commercial stiff, at least initially. It sold less than 200,000 copies in its first week. And then there was the $10 million that Kurt turned down to headline the 1994 Lollapalooza Festival. But after he died and the myth and the legend was secured, Nirvana experienced a spike in popularity and sales that continues to, well, the present day. The albums continue to sell, the books, the box set, the whole works. As the chief beneficiary of Kurt's estate, Courtney Love has enough money to spend on things like a dog walker. She actually hired a dog walker at $100,000 a year to walk dogs. She had a PR firm to help with her image at between fifteen dollars and $20,000 U.S. per month. And if mommy doesn't spend all her money on rehab and plastic surgery and lawyers, Kurt's daughter, Frances Bean, won't ever go hungry. Mummy's already bought her a pony, by the way. So, Kurt Cobain, February 27th, 1967 to April 5th, 1994. Pretty rich when alive, even richer now that he's dead. Or at least until Courtney squanders everything. The next rich dead guy is someone who left this world in almost total poverty. Sid Vicious, the most infamous dead punk of all time, was basically living hand-to-mouth during the last months of his life. Actually, he lived that way most of his life. He was a junkie, he was a petty thief, and a pretty violent guy who really didn't have much use for manners. When the Sex Pistols broke up in January of 1978, Sid was left without any real source of income. He didn't help write any of the Pistols' songs, so there were no real royalty checks. And with the way things were arranged through the Pistols' manager, Malcolm McLaren, there really wasn't much of an income stream for Sid. He was reduced to relying on the kindness of friends and to the meager amounts he received as a solo performer in the post-Sex Pistols' world. Anything he did earn, you know, 3000 here, 1000 there, went to rent, food, music gear, and, of course, heroin. And don't forget that he was also supporting his leech-like girlfriend, Nancy Spungen. When Nancy either committed suicide or was killed in October of 1978, Sid was charged with her murder and sent to Rikers Island Prison in New York. So that took care of food and accommodation for a few months. But then on February 1st, 1979, he joined his new girlfriend and his mom for a dinner 
the night before his murder trial was supposed to start. At some point during the night, he overdosed on some ultra-pure heroin that his mom had so thoughtfully provided and died in his sleep sometime around 3 the next morning. 63 Bank Street in Greenwich Village, by the way. That was the address. Since then, Sid's legend has grown to enormous proportions. Books have been written about him. Movies have been made about him. His face has been on a million t-shirts. And he's even managed to earn a few royalties from a couple of live solo CDs and something called The Great Rock and Roll Swindle, which was a Sex Pistols collection that came after the band broke up. Sid could barely afford to buy a hamburger when he died. A hamburger at McDonald's. And now he's looking down, or actually probably looking up, wondering why he's now making all this money as a dead guy. Sid Vicious, May 10th, 1957 to February 2nd, 1979. Rich, dead, junkie. story about the remains of Sid Vicious. His body was cremated, but the whereabouts of his ashes remain unclear. One story had his mother climbing the fence of the King David Cemetery in Philadelphia and spreading them in the snow over the grave of Nancy Spungen, much against the wishes of Nancy's family, by the way. Another story has mom returning the ashes to England, but as she stepped off the plane, she dropped the vase and spilled them. Some of Sid is rumored to be trapped in the air conditioning ducts at Heathrow Airport. This is a show about how death can be a great career move for certain musicians. The corollary of that is, if you're dead, you really can't enjoy the fruits of your labor, can you? Just ask Hillel Slovak of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh, wait, you can't, because, you know, like, he's dead. Along with Flea and Anthony Kiedis, Hillel was a founding member of the band back in 1983. His thing was to mix rock and punk with funk technique really wasn't all that important to Hillel. It was all about feel. And here's something that might be lost to history. Hillel was the guy who taught this trumpet player named Michael Balzeri to play bass. And if it wasn't for him, this whole flea thing would never have existed. As the Chili Peppers' reputation began to grow, Hillel also found himself in demand with other bands. And at one point, he was in two groups pretty much at the same time. Everybody believed in this guy as a musician and as an artist. But just as the Chili Peppers were starting to make an impression on everyone, after doing all the heavy lifting, getting the band off the ground, Hillel up and died of a heroin overdose on June 25th, 1988. And of course, you don't need me to tell you what kind of career the Chili Peppers have had since. Not exactly great timing. It all started with the very next album, Mother's Milk, which came out about 13 months after Hillel died. The record features contributions from him, including some of the artwork, and includes a couple of songs inspired by him. Here's one. This is called Knock Me Down. Part of the reason Blind Melon started attracting attention in the early 1990s was because they were so different. They were definitely not part of the whole grunge thing, and they were certainly not very punk. Their sound was a fresh reinvention of some classic rock moves in the vein of the Grateful Dead and Leonard Skinnerd, and it really made them stand out from the crowd. Blind Melon came together in L.A. in 1989, and for the first couple of years, the band rode a bit of a minor hype wave, but nothing seemed to really work out as it should. There was even a recording project that was shelved because it just didn't turn out right. It was too slick or something. 
The good news was the band was able to make friends with some very influential people. For example, singer Shannon Hoon's sister knew this guy from Indiana named Axl Rose. And one thing led to another, and Shannon got a gig singing backup vocals for Guns N' Roses. That's him in the background in a bunch of songs in their Use Your Illusion CDs. And if you know where to look, you can actually see him in the video for Don't Cry. Eventually, Blind Melon was able to record a debut album, but even then it sold poorly. That is, until The B-Girl. A dude named Samuel Bayer was hired to direct the video for a single from this self-titled debut album. He cast his little sister in the video and had her wear this bumblebee outfit. The video was a smash and the album started selling like crazy. People started taking Blind Melon seriously. And there was a sense that this Shannon guy had some really serious potential. But then Shannon did the dumb rock star thing and managed to OD in the back of a bus in New Orleans on October 21st, 1995. This pretty much put an end to the group's prospects. A few other things were released, but only hardcore fans paid attention. Meanwhile, though, that first album kept selling and selling and selling, mainly on the strength of that B-girl video and song. It has now sold almost 5 million copies, and the royalties from this song just keep pouring in. Unfortunately for Shannon, he's not around to enjoy it. Blind Melon and No Rain, a song he wrote for his girlfriend who was having a hard time with depression. She used to complain that she'd sleep in when it was sunny outside because the fact that it wasn't raining didn't give her an excuse not to go out that day. So in other words, the song may sound happy and optimistic, but the message is anything but. Here's another guy with just awful timing. Before 1995, Sublime was really just another garage punk band from somewhere south of Los Angeles who had managed to release just two albums over seven years. They had been grinding it out since 1988 before they finally caught some kind of a break. They were one of those bands in the right place at the right time with the right songs when the whole Southern California punk rock explosion happened in the middle 1990s. But before they could join the ranks of bands like Green Day and The Offspring, the singer up and died of an overdose. His name was Bradley Noel. The band had just finished recording their third album, and this was a major label affair, and the buzz was that it was going to be huge. But just six weeks before the album was scheduled to be released, Brad decided to take a celebratory hit of heroin on May 25, 1996, and he died. But that didn't stop the album from becoming this massive hit. In fact, it was declared a platinum album by the end of 1996. What's more is that the surviving members of the band were able to successfully mine the vaults for a bunch of other albums after Brad was gone. There was a live album called Stand By Your Van. There was the Bradley Noel and Friends acoustic album, an outtake records called Secondhand Smoke, a series of re-release singles and EPs, and a bunch of reissues and greatest hits records. And each of these records did very, very well. So, in other words, Sublime sold a million times more records after Brad Noel died. In fact, a lot of this interest in Sublime was because he died. Note to the kids. This is not the way to become a superstar. Why don't cry when my dog runs away? I don't get angry at the bills I have to pay. I don't get angry when my mom smokes pot. It's the bilinguals right to the rocks. Get the fight and it's all the same. Living with Louis Dow's the only way to stay sane. Let the loving, let the loving come back to me. Sublime, featuring singer Brad Noel, 
a guy who's made more money dead than he ever did alive. More are coming up, including the group with the absolute worst luck when it comes to opening those fat royalty checks that have finally, finally started to come in. Don't go anywhere. The Manic Street Preachers were on the verge of becoming absolutely massive at the end of 1994 and the beginning of 1995. Everyone agreed that the group had a ton of potential, plus they were the kind of group that journalists loved to write about. And they loved to write about guitarist Richie Edwards, a tremendously talented songwriter who was also hopelessly self-destructive. Add the two together and you have someone guaranteed to be in the papers almost on a daily basis. Now, the first two Preachers albums sold quite well in the UK, but they were still looking for that big international hit. In 1994, the sense was they had that hit in an album called The Holy Bible. Not only was the album pretty good, but the band also had the backing of a U.S. label, something that they needed if they were going to break things wide open on this side of the Atlantic. But then in February 1995, just as Richie was supposed to leave for a major press tour of America, he disappeared. He got up, left the London hotel in which he was staying, made one last withdrawal from a bank machine, abandoned his car in the countryside, and was never, ever seen again. And to this day, no one knows what happened to Richie Edwards. He vanished, just like a ghost. Needless to say, this caused some real problems within the band. Now, they were able to regroup and turn themselves into one of the most successful bands to ever come out of Wales, selling millions of albums and concert tickets around the world. But what about all this money do Richie? If he's dead, well, that's one thing. But what if he's not? Then there's a lot of money being kept in a trust fund somewhere. And we're talking millions of pounds. Lane Staley of Alice in Chains is definitely dead. He didn't die until April 2002, but he really might as well have been dead long before that. Alice in Chains, make no mistake about it, was a great band. They had Lane out front and a solid guitarist and songwriter in Jerry Cantrell. They had a sound and an image that was different and intriguing. Yet there's this lingering feeling that they never reached their full potential. How good might have Alice in Chains been had Lane, and frankly the rest of the band, not been so busy chasing the dragon? The last proper Alice in Chains record was the self-titled CD in 1995. You know, the one with the three-legged dog on the cover? Now, that was an okay album, but some people felt it wasn't up to the standards set by Dirt a few years earlier. Still, Alice in Chains had found a pretty good niche in the grunge and post-grunge world. The album sold well, and the money came in. Unfortunately, most of the money went to drugs, especially with Lane. It got so bad that everyone, including the band's record label, gave up hoping for any new Alice in Chains material. So, to fulfill the terms of their contract, the label was reduced to issuing and reissuing a series of greatest hits albums. That's why there were no fewer than four collections versus a total of four albums and EPs. After a while, Lane descended into a hermit-like existence in a heavily fortified condo in Seattle. He had his royalty money deposited directly into a bank account, and he had his groceries and drugs delivered right to his door. It was only when his accountants noticed that he hadn't made any withdrawals from his bank account for two weeks that they alerted his family and sent someone to break down the door, which is when they found Lane's body. Some retirement, huh? Yeah, here come the rooster.
Alice in Chains, featuring the late Lane Staley. Now, in my opinion, the band with the worst possible timing when it comes to passing on is the Ramones. This is a group that stuck together for 22 years and exactly 2,263 shows. And although they are now recognized as one of the most influential band in any kind of history of rock and roll, how they, they practically invented punk rock, it wasn't until the very, very, very end of their career that they were treated with anything other than unconditional indifference. While they were a going concern, the Ramones never had an actual radio hit. They never had a top 40 album. They never won a Grammy Award. And as one of the most important bands to ever come out of New York City, they never, ever played Madison Square Garden. Their records sold terribly. Despite their notoriety, exactly one, that's one of their more than 30 albums, went platinum. And that was a greatest hits record. Their last studio album, something called Adios Amigos, has sold just over 67,000 copies since it was released in 1995. This is what you call a career-spanning commercial slump. The only thing that kept the Ramones alive was constant touring. But the Ramones were never less than 100% committed to what they were doing. The band survived through drug habits, personality clashes, alcoholism, and even Joey Ramone's obsessive-compulsive disorder. And then, just as the band was getting all their due, all this love, all the original members started dying. Joey was the first, succumbing to a long illness with lymphoma in 2001. Dee Dee was next with a drug overdose in 2002. And then Johnny died of prostate cancer in 2004. So much for enjoying retirement. Of all the Ramones, Joey was probably doing the best. Sure, there was a fairly steady stream of royalty checks from a couple of songs like I Want to Be Sedated and Blitzkrieg Bop, but Joy was really making his money in the stock market. See, for the last years of his life, Joey didn't venture far from his apartment at 115th East 9th Street in Manhattan. He was often too weak, too ill. So he turned to online trading for entertainment. He spent a big part of his day watching the business channels on TV and trading stocks online. So that's right, one of the greatest punk rockers of all time had a fixation, an obsession with capitalism and Wall Street. And he was apparently very good at it. It is said that Joey amassed quite a fortune from his online trading. Joey even wrote a song about his favorite stock market analyst on CNBC. This is from his 2002 solo album, Don't Worry About Me. The song is named after this anchor. Her name is Maria Bartiromo. Joey Ramone and his ode to his favorite stock market analyst, Maria Bartiromo, on CNBC. And by the way, Joey was going to sing that song in her show, but he died before it could happen. In life, timing is everything. It can be in death, too. Unfortunately, with death, it's usually about bad timing. Some people can work their whole lives in an effort to achieve something only to be denied everything because the Grim Reaper has unexpectedly come to pay a visit. To make matters worse, a lot of people we've talked about on the show didn't believe in estate planning. That means when they died, their business affairs were a mess, and it took years, or is still taking years, to sort out who gets what and where the checks need to go. Just ask anyone who is related to Sid Vicious, if you can find someone. 
Um, Sid's mom, by the way, his closest living relative, uh, she died of a drug overdose. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 